how do you respond to the idea that you know it doesn't make sense or you know people don't understand like what do you think about that and what would you say to other people who maybe like making things that other people don't think make sense I think um, I love ideas I like a story that's got some concrete you know structure but also holds abstractions life is filled with abstractions and the way we make heads or tails of it is through intuition and so uh, people get used to a uh, film that pretty much explains itself a hundred percent and they kind of turn off that you know beautiful thing of intuition when they're looking at a film that has some abstractions and some people on the other hand love these abstractions and it gives them room to dream it, it an abstraction to me is a thing that cinema can say and it's, it's so beautiful, uh, for me anyway, to think about these pictures and sounds flowing along together in time in a sequence, making a thing that can only really be said in cinema. It's not words, it's not just music, it's a whole bunch of things coming together and making a thing that didn't exist before. And, and, and that's what I really love about it. About it. Hello, uh, welcome back to State of the Revolution. Uh, it's me, Benjamin, and we've also got Alex and Matthias. Uh, today is Wednesday, February 10th, and thanks for joining us this week. Uh, on, this, on this episode, we're talking about the works of David Lynch, uh, one of the most iconic and influential filmmakers of the last few decades. Uh, he was a co-creator of the popular 90s television series Twin Peaks, and he has written, directed, and produced several movies, such as Eraserhead, uh, The Elephant Man, Dune, Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Mulholland Drive. Um, and he has a, you know, a style uh, and a way of filmmaking that uh, is so distinct that even has its, uh, its own name. I think Lynchian, I think is the way some people refer to it, uh, or to other things that are similar to it. Uh, so over the, last, over the last couple of weeks or so, I've been watching some of this stuff. And it's really interesting, uh, but to be honest, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I quite, you know, get it, get a lot of it. Uh, but luckily, we've got two guests who are going to try and help figure it out. Uh, returning for their second appearance on the program, we have Aria, and we also have Quinn. Uh, thank you both for being here. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm very excited about this topic. So I suppose uh, the best place to start, at least from what I can tell, is talking about uh, dream logic, which is this thing that is pretty prevalent in a lot of Lynch's work. And I feel like I have like a general understanding of what it is and what it means. But if uh, if one of you guys could sort of describe it, describe it for me and for our audience. All right, let me let me. I just watched Eraserhead, so I think I can. I think that's like a really good like segue into like dream logic. Okay. Uh, when you're watching, you know, Eraserhead, it starts out like you know very uh, general, or it starts off very very weird and very um, abstract right away, and then you're kind of like put in this situation where oh, this could be like a real situation. And then, you know, things just get progressively weirder and weirder and weirder. Um, you know, that's sort of like a dream. 
you know, that's like sort of dream logic. Uh, also, it's, you know, not so much. I think like, you know, the sounds and, you know, different effects of like the way that you see things like um, people flickering, like the images of people flickering, you know, um, suddenly disappearing and then reappearing is something a motif that's, you know, seen throughout his films and. You know, just like, uh, you know, just a little bit of, you know, a change in your uh, direction or view. You know, you might see something a little bit differently. That's kind of uh, what I what I kind of like when I when I feel that dream logic. You know, you never know what's going to quite happen next. You some things are not quite explainable, but they feel like they, it gives you this feeling, you know, like. Oh, well, this makes sense for some reason, but, you know, it, it's something you have to intuit and not something you reason with. Yeah, well, you know, it seems to be like it's it's not it's it's not just a visual thing. It's also a part of the writing as well. Right. Like with the way that people sort of interact with each other uh, in ways that I, I don't know, to a lot of people might not make sense, almost like a dream. Right. Yeah, I was you know, I was thinking about this. And I think that it, it's very closely tied with, like, the idea of um, surrealist uh, filmmaking, um, like uh, Louise Buñuel um, and, and, you know, the, the other guys, uh, people that were doing that stuff, um, where it is trying to um, evoke or recreate it you know, to a degree, the, the experience of, like, the subconscious, right? Like, um, you know, like at the beginning of Eraserhead, we have these, um, a series of images that are just, like, put one right next to another that you're supposed to start, essentially, I mean, supposed to, in, in big quotes, you know, one cannot help but make connections between these images simply by the fact that they have been placed next to each other in chronological time. Um, and so I think that aspect of like um, engaging a kind of like subconscious or not subconscious, but, you know, um, unconscious uh, logic is also a, a large element of dream logic and, and you know, a, a major theme throughout a lot of his films. Yeah. Um, something that David does it, or doesn't do really, like, iconically, he does not explain his films. Um, and they are surrealist, right? And if you think about, like, what is a dream, it's your brain sorting out images and impressions and things that happen throughout your day and throughout your life and rearranging them uh, in in different ways to try and make sense of them. And I see that process sort of happening in his films as well as like the way he recycles things within films and then also throughout films um, is like is so dreamlike the way he reuses actors it's sort of like when you recast people in your real life and your dreams as something yeah. else um 
So the all of these threads moving through his different films, um, picking up on different themes, are um, often linked to a specific uh, thing that he witnessed or or that made an impression on him in his life. Um, like Quinn brought up the other day in our uh, group chat the um that he saw uh, a naked woman like come out of just like running the down wood. the street yeah, yeah which is like something you see in several of his films and obviously it's like a central part of blue velvet it also happens in violet art um and surely there's more examples i'm not even thinking of was that supposed to, was that a dream or something that actually happened to him in real life? Remind me. Yeah, but he was like, "Damn, she was she was acting crazy, but golly, she was pretty." Golly, <laughs> by golly, <laughs> by golly, she was pretty. I really thought that she was a beautiful woman. <laughs> She she did not look very healthy. She looked like she was in a very bad spot, but I could not help to be sexually attracted to her. Literally spot on impression. Yeah, no, that sounded pretty good. Lynch is from Montana, right? Yes. And he He's was got that uh, mid Atlantic thing going on. Yeah, wasn't he? He was uh, he was a Boy Scout when he was younger too, right? He was raised in the middle of the Atlantic. <laughs> Yeah, like an idyllic childhood, it seems like. Like, white picket fence, like, everything was delightful. And then he moves to Philadelphia for film school. I was going through the Wikipedia article tonight for Eraserhead, and I had some part about it being, like, explicitly, like, based on Philadelphia's vibe at the time, which was just, like, really hostile and, and you know. Scary. Kind of like scary, yeah. Speaking as someone who has been to Philadelphia, and that was the first place I ever saw a man just, like, openly, like, peeing in public and, like, just the fields of trash that were strewn across every street, I can totally see that. Mm -hmm. It's always sunny. It's not. The TV's <laughs> lying to you. <laughs> what? Yeah. In that documentary, uh, The Art Life, he speaks very derisively of Philadelphia. Like, he is just, like, almost mad to recall having lived there. He really hated it. But he loves L.A., so clearly he's just, like, a West Coast man at heart. Yes, yeah. yes. I, I wanted to say when we get around to it, but Mulholland Drive... Totally, I mean, you know, it's a very obvious thing to say, right? It's in the fucking name, but it's totally about L.A. It's entirely about L.A. and Hollywood. And it's amazing. It's amazing because of it. Yeah, I think, yeah. I, I, think I saw, like, a YouTube video or something, or maybe it was, like, an article I read explaining how, like, um, yeah, like, Eraserhead is kind of like, you know, the... The exploration of the, um, like, anxiety that he was, like, feeling personally and all, like, in the setting of, you know, Philadelphia and how, like, those two things kind of, like, fed each other. 
I he he is sort of doing like the same thing in terms of you know Mahalan Drive, and it's not necessarily like his Hollywood dream that he's talking about. It's a lot. It's the Hollywood dream of these like actresses and these women going to Hollywood. Yes, mostly. Yes, and and their relationship with and even though he loves the city, like he's showing that like you know underbelly of the city and what it is. You know, and he does the same thing with like Blue Velvet, right? Kind of like the white picket fence, suburban, idyllic life. And he subverts that with Blue Velvet. Does the same thing with uh, Mahalan Drive. Subverts, you know, the family and childbirth in uh, in uh, Eraserhead. So, um, yeah, podcast over. I think we figured it out. <laughs> I do love that juxtaposition. Um, oh, no. I'm always freezing. Um, no, I, I like what you brought Me up, too. Alex. Uh, the the white picket fence contrasted with something ugly, and I think that his the theme of the ugly thing is always like post-industrial, like factory shops and stuff, like just very. Um, uh, I can't think of the word for it. It's like a post that, like, you see, there's, like, a lot of, like, atomic bomb imagery in a lot mm-hmm. of his work, right? Like, that's really prevalent in Twin Peaks. You know, the Bob is literally birthed from, like, an atomic bomb. Uh, the first atomic bomb. Um, in Eraserhead, there's, like, a little, uh, there's, like, a little photo, like, picture frame of an atomic, like, a mushroom cloud in his room in Mike's, is it Mike or, what's his name again? Henry. Henry, that, yeah, Henry's room. Oh, my God, he, he actually kind of looks like a Henry that I know. Yeah, it seems like a commentary on, um, sort of, like, progress being an end to itself. Eraserhead specifically, you mean? I mean, I he he definitely like revisits this theme or idea in his work a lot, but it's definitely present in Eraserhead. I feel like a lot of like the setting of Eraserhead is almost like, you know, post-apocalyptic as well. Yeah, right. Like yeah. it looks post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're in a gigantic city with like four people. There's yeah. no one in the city. I, I I thought that too. It looked very like sparse. You know, um, I wonder, like, what do you think it was black and white because, you know, it meant to, like, it was meant to be just more alienating or, like, the sets were so terrible that they didn't want people to notice? <laughs> I think it, it's got to be a, a, a decision, right? Because certainly they had, I mean, this is, of course, they had uh, color films in 1977. Yeah. Well, I, d- I did watch uh, an interview with Lynch that was that was done like very shortly after Eraserhead came out, where I he said something to the effect of he had the set designed in a way specifically to not not look like any particular city. Uh, I suppose like what Quinn was saying is that he try- maybe tried to capture the vibe of Philadelphia, but it wasn't meant to look like any any place that we would recognize. I have a, a novel eraser head theory, and I don't know if anyone has come up with this particular one. I did some Googling around, but you know how Lynch says that eraser head is his most religious or like spiritual film. So I personally think the the guy who lives inside the earth and is like moving the uh the uh what are they? 
Levers. Uh, levers. Levers. That's <laughs> basically like God or fate or whatever you yeah, want to call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, th- That's and pretty, that's pretty like, uh, gener- like a lot of people say that. Really? Okay, yeah. good. I'm glad it's not just Wait, me so actually so he was then. inside the earth? That That's... That's what we, that's, that's his where he was. that's his that, name that he okay. represents like fate and um oh thank God yes. yeah okay. and uh, and um like the woman across from the apartment represents like lust and his sexual fantasy yeah people are always having extramarital affairs in David Lynch movies yeah which yeah. is something he also did in real life so he's probably like projecting <laughs> he's, he's been married like three times hasn't he. At least he's a, he's popped out a lot of kids, not personally, yeah. but he's contributed to it. <laughs> <laughs> I interpreted the eraser head baby as potentially um, an abortion. That he—that's so crazy. I love that. Oh, that's cool. Uh, that's cool. Yeah. Do we all think the eraser head baby is like evil? Like a like a malevolent no. entity, or is it just like a a regular baby? I think it's like um, you know, I was thinking when we were watching it uh, that you know after Eraserhead he does the Elephant Man, right? And I think that there is a, a, a through line in a lot of his stuff, but definitely those two, where it's like sympathy for the people who are like put into the freak show, you know, um. It like humanizing um, something that you know you look at and like you know Ben Ben and I when we were watching it like when the baby first was shown we were both like okay you've got to kill that baby <laughs> um, yeah it's funny uh, Arya that you uh, that you compared it to an abortion because like when we were watching it I was like is it too late for one of those right I mean. I think I think that um I think that like uh Eraserhead is I think the baby is definitely it it depends, right? It depends on like, you know, the viewer. I think that that's another thing about Lynch is that's very important, right? There isn't like a definitive interpretation. Everybody's interpretation matters for Lynch. And I mean, for him, I would say probably when he was making this movie that like it's about just how you know terrifying it is like to have a like you know your the first child your first baby or it's like especially if you think that you're not like adequate enough for that you don't think that you're like good enough to have a child you know like i think that that's like what he's really thinking about there i think that you i think that you know like the child kind of like becomes him and that's like what his you know the the woman who's like representing lust like sees him as it like it that like that disgusting thing that like baby destroys him and changes him and now it's now it is like taking over him and you know like the whole eraser head is like I just wish that all this can be erased and I can just like not deal with this anymore. That's what that is, I think. Um oh. I I think that it's interesting that Quinn mentioned that that he thinks at least of it as a very spiritual film. Because one of the notes that I made about about or about oh, fuck one of the notes I made for Eraserhead was um, that the ending is a father killing his child. Right? It's like Abraham. Yeah, it's infanticide. Uh, yeah, very biblical. Um, and and the 
that kind of the prevalence of um of fathers i think is also something that is that is like really um a, a recurring central symbol and um i was i was thinking about this mainly because ben said oh you should really try and watch blue velvet today because there's some very edible shit going on there um and i was like okay and so you know obviously there is but i was thinking about it and you know uh who kills laura palmer her father right um you know in in uh, oh, by the way, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I should I should have mentioned this before. Uh, if you're listening to this, we are operating under the assumption that you've uh, that you've seen these things. Uh, but sorry, continue. Um, but you know, if one considers, uh, like in Blue Velvet, who is who is the kind of like the savior character, the the detective father, right? He comes in to save the day. I mean, you know, Kyle MacLachlan has already capped Frank, so it's it's kind of pointless. But um are you accusing I, David Lynch of having daddy issues? Um in so much as everyone does. I, I want to talk about this also actually. Um the body deformity. I I feel actually I'm not like well uh what's the word? I'm like prepared for this cuz actually like I feel like I need to talk about like Cronenberg. You know, like I don't I haven't watched enough like Cronenberg. And, you know, like, if you were going to talk about body horror and body deformity, we got to talk about Cronenberg. Cronenberg was definitely an influence on Lynch. Um, that's, that's for sure. Did Cronenberg do scanners? I, like I said, I'm not prepared. <laughs> okay. I just, I just know that that's the body horror guy. I'm actually not familiar with What Cronenberg. does he do? I, think I only know I, so many men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I he's... know uh, the he reason. He did Videodrome. I... He did Videodrome. Uh, I've seen that one. Hey, yeah. Someone takes like a, a or puts a gun into their like stomach, but their stomach is also like a vagina. That's all I really remember from that movie. Oh dear. And really, oh, that really good practical yeah. effects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If he did, if he did scanners, there's a scene that I know very well. Oh my god. This incredible scene where um, this guy's just like is like shaking from some like rays, and then his head explodes. And I think about that scene so free. I definitely thought about it a lot more like during the primaries, when I was like, every time that a fucking you know hit piece on Bernie came out, I was like, I'm about to go scanners right now. Okay, yeah, but all right. Honestly, though, like. From from the girls, from the ladies, like we we need we need you guys to explain, you know, David Lynch, because that's like the point of this, right? Is like the girls explaining David Lynch, because girls they be intuiting, okay? Like we <laughs> don't have the that intuition. That's kind of gender essentialist of you. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the point. <laughs> Women that's the in point. their arcane, intuitive knowledge. Well, right. So we have to explain. And have to explain. Compassion and we're right. connected you know, to the moon mothering instincts, connection to the earth through their womb. Um, it's uh, it's funny how that is always, or not always, but you know, frequently like. The people that are that are into that shit, they're like, oh, no, women are just, you know, they're more connected to the spiritual. Like, oh, but yeah, and, and of course, that means that men are, you know, rational. So 
Yes, because before... women are stupid, so they're more in touch with like that part, like they're the the brainstem. That's what we're thinking with. That's the whole thing. Yeah, and before anyone gets mad at me for misgendering Aria, we've discussed this for this for the purposes of this podcast. For the purposes of the podcast, we've discussed this. She's well, a woman. So one of the like recurring motifs that I noticed in the movies that I watched was uh, the flickering lights, which I think is most prevalent in Eraser. Uh, sorry, yeah, Eraserhead. Uh, so I was curious, Arya, what your take on that was. Like, what what is what in your opinion? What is that supposed to be? Um, I feel like there's flickering lights in everything. Um, one instance that I really enjoyed and also that clicked really well for me was in, in Mulholland Drive when the cowboy appears. That's exactly what I was thinking mm, of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, I think that it indicates something paranormal or something, something crossing planes. Um, like it gives off an electrical current um, or something like that that causes a, a visual cue um, that something is happening again. I think it's like the fl- the flickering lights is I think it almost represents kind of like what's what's the truth not just not like truth as in like this is what's true, but this is like the truth that's like that's moving the plot. Almost like you see the flickering light in uh, uh, Eraserhead right before, you know, uh, Henry is told that, you know, he's got the giant sperm baby, the giant lizard sperm baby. Right. Like that's kind of that's when you see the flickering light there. Like you were saying, like you see the flickering light right before you see the cowboy. The cowboy can be represented as kind of, you know, um, Hollywood success or something like that. I think of him as like the most morally good character in that entire movie. Someone who's completely unaffected by like Hollywood and all of those things. No artifice. That's true. Do we want to do we want to go through and talk about these um, movie by movie a little bit? Yeah, I mean, we've we've spent a fair amount of time on uh, Eraserhead, I think. Yeah, uh, already. It's Blue Velvet next. Yeah, it's next. It's next on the outline. Okay. Weird sex shit. That's why that whole my movie. I've been trying to figure out what, if anything, David Lynch is trying to say with Isabella Rossellini's character. Like, is he trying to make some moral point about like consensual violence against battered women like is he saying it's bad or it's fine or women be hot when they're in like bad situations that's what i think david lynch definitely thinks that um yeah yeah, uh i think all right i was like very uncomfortable at first like when yeah like she's like this is like right after a rape scene and then she's like oh i'm gonna like fuck this kid now and then she like brought the knife out and i was like oh well she's gonna try and rape the kid i think that makes it a little bit better um what well you know what i mean right where it's like i I thought she was going to castrate him alex said no but i mean i mean i mean what i'm saying what i'm saying is like it makes me very (laughs) uncomfortable Right, where it's like, oh, this like filmmaker is having it's like this equity. women, 
this woman like, oh, I need to like have sex right now after I almost like or after I just got raped. And then like, oh, uh, uh, instead it's like, oh, well, instead she's actually going to be doing the raping now, which I was just like, okay, like that's at least like. That's at least like vengeance or something. Yeah. This is what liberal feminists want. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I didn't interpret that as a rape scene. Am I broken? Is that? No, I also, I mean, I suppose when, when Alex said that, I was like, oh yeah, no, I suppose so. But, um, yeah, it's definitely a rape scene. She's holding a knife to him. Oh, I thought you were talking about, uh, Frank. Yeah. Well, no, Frank is also raping her. Frank is raping her. Frank rapes her, and then she rapes Kyle uh, McCaughlin or McCaughlin or however you say his name. Um, I feel like you're using that word a little loosely here, but my impression was that uh, I could be wrong. That my impression was that they had some kind of understanding. They- yeah, I never thought the the sex between Kyle McLaughlin and uh, Isabella Rossellini's character was like non-consensual i, I would the say last time i saw this movie was a while ago but the I never first time i would say it's a rape this the times afterward maybe not i was talking about frank and what is her character's name uh dolores Do- no dorothy. dorothy 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 yeah I'm- damn dorothy huh interesting um okay what is frank huffing that turns him from daddy to baby Nitrous uh, something, oxide? something nitrate. I can't remember what the first word is. It's like a, the first word starts with an A, and then the second word is Amel? nitrate, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Oh my God! He's just doing poppers. <laughs> Holy shit! Um. Okay. So it's suddenly the whole movie makes. Wait, but sense. poppers says don't make your voice high like that. I think it's something else. He he's just offing helium and going into like a sexual fit. Um, baby wants to fuck. So we were. T- oh, I mean, it's pretty clear he wants to fuck. Oh my god! Yeah. Um. So that whole that whole scene, um, was I mean you know kind of horrifying. But also, like, at, like extremely fascinating because it's like, what is, um, I guess, what do you think the psychological implication is of this guy who privately, you know, wants to seemingly crawl back into his mother's womb, um, but also, you know, while he is doing this, he cannot allow her to look at him right um uh yeah i don't know that this this movie is in my opinion about all manners of sexual perversion which i don't use in a negative way like in the sense that like most sex is pervert uh perverse but you know uh these people are all very kinky and uh it kind of makes you wonder about what's going on you know, and in in the layers of the mind. Yeah, no, this movie gives me like very, very weird vibes. To be honest with you, I think this movie is like, it was interesting. I liked the plot a lot. 
Um, but it was just like the vibes like were very weird. I don't I be, because I think that, you know, it's a little bit right wing even. I think that it's kind of like it is. Kind I've been of, it, trying it's, to figure out whether I think Lynch is a misogynist or not. I think I like think more he's than like the average filmmaker. I what think he's say, Oh, that he definitely is. Just from the way that oh. he talks to women um, in interviews. You remember that that clip? You showed a clip. You look a like lot better in your pictures. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh huh. He told Naomi fucking Watts that she looked better in her pictures and made her go home and put more makeup on and come back. Listen, I am old school. <laughs> I do things a certain way. Oh, and it makes wow. me happy to look back to when things were good and nice. I that... just want to go back to when before things were bad and people were yelling at me. <laughs> Why are people yelling at me? Please stop yelling. Like that's that kind makes of some of this stuff a lot less, uh, or you know, a little. Well, hmm, I don't know. I, I guess it is hard not to read into it, especially you know when you say like, oh, he, um, you know, like so, the incident with like the woman running down the street, you know, had this uh, impact on him. You know, it is hard not to see these movies as having some kind of a personal. Um, or, you know, like reflecting something uh, autobiographical, um, even if it is uh, through some kind of a, uh, you know, like refracted, like through a prism. But um, that does kind of raise the question of like, uh, that, you know, these being misogynistic depictions of women, essentially. I mean, yeah, like, almost all of, like, the women in his movies are hysteric. Also. Like, they're all hysteric all the time. As, Probably because they're always intuiting. As a hysterical, quote, woman, um, I guess, like, maybe I love that. I feel Yeah, I always feel very seen by his movies. <laughs> like, yeah. I identify with the women, but then I'm like, damn, is that, like, a good thing? Is he, like writing these characters with like compassion and like understanding of the the female experience or is he just kind of like wow that's interesting hmm, <laughs> i think that yeah. david loves crazy women and and they love him when, back yeah and whether or not <laughs> he is making misogynist commentary on crazy women i don't I don't think that he, I, okay, here's what it is. I think in his worship of crazy women, his depictions of them can, um, in this commentary, but they come from a place of genuinely adoring hysterical women. And okay. what I really like about, well, okay. Fair. Oh, I, I, no, keep going, keep going. Keep going. I was about to switch gears a little bit, but what I really like about Blue Velvet, this is my favorite one, um, is it's very shocking throughout. There's, there's little gags and, um, and jump scares even, but it's not a horror movie. And I think in a way that, is expressive of BDSM and like watching this movie is 
is almost like being in a scene. Um, and so I really love that about it. Um, my favorite gag is right at the beginning when um, she's on the phone with Frank and she's talking to him like she's scared of him. And then she switches to talking to baby Frank, but you don't know that baby Frank exists yet. So you think that it's like her child that he has, or there's like an actual child involved. And then you get to the scene with Frank and you find out that Frank is the baby. It's just like my favorite, one of my favorite jokes that David Lynch has ever played on me. Like the thrill of putting that together for the first time is so good. I love how funny David Lynch's movies are. Like it's definitely intentional on some level, but I remember watching Eraserhead when I was like 15 or 16 and just like laughing and laughing like the, the baby noises that are just like, over and over. I'm like, that's kind of funny. Like, I don't know. And then the old people in Mulholland Drive. Yes. Like, that shit's funny. They're, they are hilarious. I love the scene when they're in the taxi and they're just, like, leering at the camera with these, like, horrifying grins and pointing at literally just overpasses of highway. No, yeah, I love, I love like that opening scene. Uh, or I don't, it's not really like the opening scene. It's like the scene after the credits. Uh, yeah, it, where uh, you know Naomi Watts is coming down the escalator and she's just in the airport and she's looking up around the airport like it's the most amazing thing in the world. I'm just yeah, like you're in the say? airport. What, what are did, you what doing? Did she say? I I just can't believe it. Is that, isn't that what she says when she walks out the fucking doors of LAX? <laughs> yeah, it, incredible. Just, like, incredible stuff. It was very, very, like, corny, for sure. I, yeah. have, I have the most amount of notes on Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive okay, is before, probably my favorite one yeah. of the three, I think. Yeah, mine too. But before we switch to Mulholland Drive, real quick, uh, in our outline, someone added the note under in Blue Velvet that says uh, Madonna slash... Uh, horror complex i think was that quinn that was would me you, would you care to elaborate on that because i'd like to know more about what you were thinking oh about. so kyle mclaughlin's little blonde girlfriend i can't remember her name that girl or in the her, movie or sandy she, was was her character's name yeah yeah she was like the you know the the madonna and dorothy is the quote-unquote horror um and i always kind of saw that movie as him like you know kyle mclaughlin's character denying that he had sex with this woman when he did have sex with her and then going back to his like girlfriend and their perfect life and i was just like damn this guy wants to have his cake and eat it too and i Mm -hmm. think that david lynch probably wasn't necessarily like moralizing on that theme because i think that's also something david lynch has probably done in his life but it was just interesting to me i mean yeah I think that there's definitely, um, you know, like something going on with how Laura Dern's character reacts when she finds out of like the sexual relationship between Kyle and uh, Dorothy. Oh, my God. She like 
she melts down. Her face looks down. like she's it like uh in like, you know, the Indiana Jones with the, the Ark and the faces start melting. The Ark of the Covenant. Why yes. It's, so it's it. like the Ark of the Covenant just opened and she's like, oh, like just losing, absolutely unable to speak even. And and also, and I think like that should also be juxtaposed, right, with um, how are we supposed to feel about uh dorothy's kidnapped husband like how are we supposed to feel about him because i don't think that we're even supposed to be very sympathetic to him even though that he's kidnapped i think that we're supposed to assume that he was also like abusive to dorothy and that's why kyle is like a good person for fucking her i didn't really pay him any mind i'm gonna be honest but no yeah i mean it's his ear it's 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 his it's finding his ear the husband dorothy's husband's ear that really sets off the whole chain of events in the movie sets off the whole plot that's so, true. So, oh, yeah. you know, I think that that, I think that those two relationships, like how, you know, Laura Dern reacts, like to how Laura, Laura Dern's rea- relation to Kyle and also Kyle's relation to the husband that he's cucking. That, yeah, whatever. Cucking. He's also cucking Frank, too, though, at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Which is hot. Yep. So there's lots. Of, there's lots going on there. There's lo- there's a whole lot going on there that we need to explore. Um, okay. That we are exploring regarding the Madonna and whore complex. David does something super obvious. Well, two things. One, the the good girl's always blonde, and the whore is always brunette. <laughs> always brunette. Um, ah! And then the whores, <laughs> that's just like a thing everyone does. And then the whores always wear red nail polish. The girl putting on red nail polish, like scarlet letter. Yeah, yeah. And this is throughout all of, all of his movies, but mm-hmm. especially in the home drive. Oh my god, blonde girl and her brunette girlfriends with red nail polish. <laughs> With red nail polish. Yeah. Okay, well, on that note, let's let's talk about Mulholland Drive because I gotta say, of of the three movies that I watched, uh, that one was probably my favorite. Uh, funny enough, I I did watch Mulholland Drive like years ago when I was in high school, um, and I did not like it at all. <laughs> but then I rewatched it. Uh, was it yesterday, Matthias, that we watched it? Yeah. And yeah, it's probably it's my favorite of of the ones that we've seen. Um, so one question that, uh, I'm curious if you guys have an answer to is, uh, if, if you think that Mulholland Drive has like a comprehensible, like concrete, like narrative structure, yeah. um, cause I think it does. And I think there's some dispute over that. I don't know I why. I think it does too. I don't know why. I think why. it does too. I think it does too. Blue Velvet It's just has like a hard plot. to understand. You have to watch it a couple times to like get it. Yeah, sure, Blue yeah. Velvet definitely has, like, it's not just, you know, easier to comprehend, but it's just a better plot. Blue Velvet has is a better story and all that. But just, mm-hmm. like, Mulholland Drive is just so much fun. It just is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I don't know why there's debate around whether or not there's a narrative. <laughs> it's because people are just, stupid. It's just difficult to understand, so people give up. <laughs> They're not used to being challenged by movies. It's because all these guys and their linear think- thinking, these men who don't want to intuit anything. Okay, so in Mulholland Drive, is there any sympathetic characters? Yeah, that's a good question. 
I, I, I am of the impression that, like, the cowboy isn't a character, and he's, like, completely symbolic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a manifestation of, like, good. So I guess you could say maybe, like, the cowboy. Um, there's also kind of, like, the innocent guy from the beginning, from the diner scene in the beginning. I, got, he, I, I don't know how innocent he is. He's kind of, like, a sympathetic character. Is he? Or is he not? He seemed like it to me. Do we think that the guy behind Winky's diner, the like super horrible like looking man, burned looking I feel person. like he's like an entity that is kind of like Bob, but instead of only existing as a, like a spiritual thing, he only exists in dreams and that's the only mm-hmm. place you can like access him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have something to say about that. Um, not only is David Lynch... <laughs> fucking misogynist also racist oh no <laughs> dude like so I, I like oh my god like i don't know what it like there is something that is kind of very funky with like him you know just like i want to make this guy evil make him black <laughs> i never saw him as funny. being black i saw him as being like covered in mud no i no i understand that too i get it mud is interesting i i I only watched it once uh, uh, since yesterday, but I always, uh, he, he appeared to be burned to me. Burned. Yeah. No, but I mean, I'm not the first to say that. I think it is kind of funny, though, that that is kind of like, it is kind of like a very just like old and, you know, tried motif, light versus dark, good versus evil, so, you know? Uh, Mulholland Drive was developed as a, a sequel to Twin Peaks. So there's probably a lot of similar themes. I mean, obviously all of his movies have really similar themes, but probably there's going to be a lot more straight lines between Twin Peaks and Mulholland Drive because he, he couldn't get uh, that third season off the ground quite yet um, and ended up optioning it for a film and right, apparently writing the narrative structure in one night. Yeah, it's definitely there. That is definitely something he took from like Twin Peaks, like the Woodsman in Twin Peaks, right? Like, it, it, I, I don't, Ben, are you like that far yet? I don't think you're that no, far I'm, yet. I'm still like in the beginning of season two, unfortunately. Yeah, in season three, you're going to get like, you know, these. Are, I think, do you get some Woodsman in season two? No, I don't think we get Woodsman in Season 2. I don't think I've seen... Uh, no, but you get some Woodsman in Season 3, and the Woodsmen are definitely, like, uh, these kind of... Th- this darkness that, like, Lynch uses. This, like, under... This seedy underbelly of, like, you know, perfect life in Twin Peaks, or perfect, like, life in the United States. It's um, kind of like what he's like working with, or like L.A. Perfect life in L.A. So Bob is is this like evil, like entity that embodies evil that was birthed from an atomic bomb. But then we've also got these other evil entities that seem like they're the same type of creature as Bob. So are there other like events that birthed them that made Mike that made this the creature that we saw in Mulholland Drive? What do you guys think? Or is Bob like the main one and there are all his like lackeys, the devil and his demons, or is there like some kind of unified class? I think that, I think that, um, yeah, Bob is kind of like, he's got like more freedom, I think, than just like the other, the uh, like the woodsmen. The woodsmen are kind of like drones and they kind of like, 
they're they, they're working at the behest of like the great evil like the void which is like the mother creature that births bob and all the evil i think yeah. that that's kind of what's going on because like you because um i think it's in episode season three episode eight where you see that these woodsmen have like these different types of like jobs framing it like that makes me really think of bob as like a lucifer uh, analogy and all these un- other entities those demons which also i think then renders uh laura palmer an angel and probably some other characters as well but i don't think Mulholland drive has any angels everybody sucks yeah yeah i have a fun fact about Mulholland drive that i Got from the dark depths of Wikipedia. <laughs> so the guy who lives in the basement of the film studio, his name is Mr. Roke. Um, the actor Michael J. Anderson, who was the dwarf little person that was in Twin Peaks, same guy, except they built him prosthetics specifically for his arms and legs. So that his body would look really big and his head would look really small. Oh, really? I just thought that was an interesting choice and very um, similar to what David Byrne was trying to do with his giant suit. Yeah, yeah, I'm wondering if he got the inspiration from that. Also reminds me of the Eraserhead baby in the suit. Man, I'm going to be thinking about the Eraserhead baby for a little while. That thing was nasty. (laughs) I heard a theory that it was like a cheap fetus or something, but he never actually said like exactly what it was to give it an aura of mystique. What do you guys think of the uh, the kind of like sperm-like things that are... You know, uh, falling in in the beginning, uh, uh, and then falling during that scene where the woman is kind of like doing the vaudeville number. Uh, you know? oh, it just back. ties we're into ba- the baby theme, creation, destruction. I actually think, or okay, so like, and I got like a lot of this from online too, like with Eraserhead, but it seems to be like this is like the very general. Uh, consensus like that lady who's like doing like the singing is supposed to like you know help him be like okay with like death or something like that so that whole like dance number dance routine is like sort of pushing him to the point where he's going to be okay to kill the baby which he eventually does you guys want to talk about dancing it's in I mean, all, I, all of all of this. I think we need to talk about like um, if we're gonna like not not just like dancing, but like the music and like the sound, like the wind in Eraser Head, very very like important and deliberate. Well, I thought that the sound in Eraser Head was like the most salient feature. Right. Um, yeah. You know that like the ambient noise was constantly like cranked to ten. You get a lot of that ambience and wind too in Mulholland Drive as well, and you also get wind in Blue Velvet. Wind is very important. Wind is the mystery. Wind is supposed to give you that like mysterious feeling. It's supposed to like you know something's going on, and we it's like it's blowing you in directions that you don't know which one it's going to be yeah there's a lot of wind in season three of twin peaks as well and i feel like i've Mm -hmm. seen a meme that's a bunch of screen caps of kyle mclaughlin where the um the closed captions there's just like a lot of that there was like a lot the 
the closed captions were like 100% needed for a lot of the oh, yeah. Twin Peaks season three. That is that is like very uh very important. Arya, you wanted to you wanted to talk about the music, right? Well, Alex had mentioned it too, but you also uh, mentioned earlier that you wanted to talk about the music because well, like one of the uh, one of the things that I noticed, uh, or at least one of the similarities between uh, Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive is that they both have someone lip syncing to a Roy Orbison song. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious uh, if there's uh, what's meant to be conveyed by the not not just the Roy Roy Orbison, but but the act of lip lip syncing. Gosh, so when I brought that up, I was thinking about like the genre, really, um, mm-hmm. because that comes through, especially Wild at Heart, um, where like one of the main characters basically is Elvis. Um, and it reminds me of when Alex was talking earlier about, um, like idyllic, like Americana, um, kind of like nostalgia for white picket fence, like American dream bullshit. Like, I definitely think he has some kind of auditory fixation on that. I think that, you know, rep- definitely represents that theme. Yeah. The lip syncing, I don't know. I mean, it's about artifice and about, I don't know. What do y'all think? I've, I've got a theory on this. Um, I think that it is like, I agree with you. It is totally about artifice, right? And uh, kind of like simulation. Um, uh the um in like the sense of like Baudrillard um like copying something that is copying something that is copying something um and and I think that the fact that both times when they're lip syncing in in the two movies that uh Ben and I watched you know uh Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive both times they stop at some point and it becomes extremely obvious that they're just lip syncing. Um, in Blue Velvet, it's pretty much obvious the whole time, right? In Mulholland Drive, it's a big reveal. Um, and, and I think that that is kind of indicative of one of the big themes of Mulholland Drive, which is, you know, kind of like um, it starts with a dream of Hollywood, and then <laughs> there's a big reveal that it's all just fake. Man, David loves to comment on things being fake and. Arya, you froze. What was that? Oh, I was just saying that uh, David has a lot to say about women being fake and crazy. <laughs> but I, I think it's more about it. like Hollywood being fake, but also like his work couldn't exist without Hollywood. So I always think it's kind of funny. It's like, you know, you're part of that, right? Mr. Lynch. Like thinking about, um, the dance. Oh my God. Okay. Going back to dancing, Mm -hmm. talking. Um, so Alex brought up that the dance in Eraserhead, um, it was like getting him ready to kill his baby. And then, 
thinking about it in Twin Peaks, um, when, um, wow, the name escapes me suddenly. Are you talking about Audrey Horn? No, I'm actually talking about, like, Laura's dad is, when he's possessed by Bob, is always dancing. Leland Palmer? Yes, Leland. I don't know why it just flew out of my brain. I'm literally watching. A lot of names. I thought we were talking about the Audrey Horn dance, and I was like, oh, we can talk about the Audrey Horn dance if you want. I can uh, talk about the Audrey Horn dance. For... Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Me too. But, no, I'm thinking about, like, the, like, dancing um, and killing your child. <laughs> and just, like, um, yeah, I don't know. Some kind of psychosis. He, he like, starts yeah. dancing and he's like bawling in like the first, mm-hmm. like the is it the first episode of yeah, Twin Peaks? I think, I'm pretty sure it's like it's like I think it happens in like the first first couple episodes. Like like that swing music comes on and he just starts dancing and he's like fucking sobbing and crying yeah. out for someone to dance with him. Oh yeah. yeah. No, I mean, um, you know, music. Uh, I think he said before, like, it's this, it's the same as like a, uh, uh, movie kind of in that it can like tell or it like exude a feeling or tell a story, you know? Um, and it's not just like the music. It's also like the sounds that, you know, kind of make the soundtrack of a, you know, movie kind of like music. That's kind of like something that he tries to do too. So it's like, you know, you t- you say it's like the swing music, you know, we're listening to, you know, just like the right, re- like the regular, you know, Twin Peaks soundtrack and, you know, he can be like dancing and swaying to it. And it's like very, very, and he's like bawling his eyes out. And it, we like feel that, you know, like we, it's like a general sound that's manufactured and it's it's part of that dream logic too i think like yeah there's definitely you know mood setting that's going on when he's like you know putting in all this wind you know making the making everybody in um uh the white lodge like they're speaking in reverse and then he's playing it in reverse so it sounds like it's you know they're talking normally but weird <laughs> you know like that kind of whole dynamic of what he's doing is like very important that what you said is interesting oh fuck i i i'm blanking on what that just made it made me think of something but i i lost it i hate yeah that that happens to me a lot there's always a woman singing or lip syncing in front of a red curtain every single work um that i've seen um do you guys want to talk about red curtains? Because I feel like that's just such a iconic Lynch yeah. thing. Yeah. So what do we think about the red curtains? Oh, my God. Okay. Um, I think... <laughs> I have no input other than it sounds kind of vaginal. Love that. Oh, damn. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. red curtains are oh my like... God. The red curtains are an excuse to watch Naomi Watts rub it. Is... That's, that's like... What... <laughs> is that's what they, that's lodge, what it is for david lynch is the black lodge like the womb mm. like no. the primordial 
uh some kind of sp- i don't know i i'm just spitballing here i, I mean I like the, i mean it's uh, it's like it's definitely supposed to be you know like the pageantry of film right you know like that's what he's trying to portray here yeah and it's supposed to be like and he's supposed it's it a lot of like his films are kind of like meta commentary on film like that's kind of like what i think twin peaks was also like a meta commentary on tv and film you know like <laughs> Yeah. That's kind of like what he's doing a lot, I think, I think. Is he's like saying, "This is what I think movies should be. They should be about nostalgia and what's good and what and what's not and what's evil and how to deal with that." <laughs> I just think that we need to figure this shit out. <laughs> I agree that the curtains are definitely meta commentary, but I also think the curtains are like a portal, right? Cuz you you go through a curtain. Um, yeah, and so I think some of the function, especially of the performances, is to highlight the way that a song is a dream, a song is its own story, um, and and can take you somewhere else. You know, to 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 talk a moment about the performances, um. One of like the lip syncing, I think that the performances delivered by the actors is intentionally very artificial. Um, you know, you know what I mean. I I feel like that is something that is uh, present in all his work. Um, I was thinking about it a lot watching Mulholland Drive the other day. I think Lynch is just like constantly hyper aware of the context in which his work is being created. And that just is reflected in it. Like he can't get over the fact he's like, "Ah, it's Hollywood movie. It's Hollywood. It's Hollywood. I thought, uh, one of the things about, um, Mulholland drive that I thought was kind of significant is that, um, you know, the movie is named for a street and when uh, Rita comes out of the car crash and walks through the forest, what street does she end up on? Sunset Boulevard, right? Um, and so I was kind of thinking about that movie, which is about, um, you know, a- an aging silent film star who um, can't let go of this uh, kind of illusion of Hollywood. You know, it kind of made me think about uh, the way that, like, the whole first, the whole first part of the movie is is like this fantasy of uh, Diane, you know, because she really can't let go of um, this dream. I was I, the same thing just happened to me. It reminded me of something, and I wanted I wanted to say, and I forgot it like right away because I was letting you finish instead of just interrupting you. Oh, so I told that, you to get that's paper, so Alex. magnanimous of you. Yeah. Aw, manners. Okay, Alex. I mean, <laughs> Alex. I, oh, I was going to say Sunset Boulevard. Um, Yeah, I'm pretty sure David Lynch is, like says that's his favorite movie all the time. Oh. I'm pretty sure that's David Lynch's favorite movie, Sunset Boulevard. That checks out. Um, You brought up Naomi's masturbation scene. Okay, from what I could understand of the interview that I watched with him and Naomi, he made her for real jerk off 
What? Yeah, and even though that shot was just of her face, he put up tents like around her so that like no one could see her, but everybody was still there on set. And it, and was, it was captured on film. Yeah, and it was super difficult for her. Um, and that's why the scene got so aggressive because <laughs> she was like pissed off at David. Um, you want to know? Uh, you want to know, um, that reminds Yikes. me of, I, what's that show on Netflix, Bridgerton, or what, how do you fucking say it? Yeah, that's it. Bridgerton or whatever. I'm pretty sure that, like, th- like, one of the uh, actors on that show, like, she was talking about how, like, they did a re- she had to have a real O. She had to have, like, a real orgasm on camera. Ew. That's, and that's that what is... they, that's what they wanted apparently and like and apparently like there was like a woman like there was like a woman director like not like not the director but like a woman with the director to like make sure everyone felt okay (laughs) making sure that everyone felt okay but also that they did it yeah but also regardless of how they felt (laughs) exactly yeah Uh, yeah cool they um so yeah uh, I guess David Lynch's um you know trailblazer in that regard. Yeah, I'm sure I, there's uh, some sort of French experimental filmmaker that did it before him. No, they're probably they're probably. I mean, there's like lots of porn that that's out there. <laughs> I'm I'm sure David's not the first perverted director to do that to somebody, but <laughs> I thought it was uh, th- there has never been. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, the I thought mean, was just of her face, though. I know they show they they show her it like hands down, hands, the camera pans down her body. I I don't I don't think like the I think she's like wearing like jean shorts and yeah. and like uh they're they're like unbuttoned like and the zipper is down. That's like about all you can see. Yeah, mm. that's how it is. And she's like putting her hand in her underwear. Yeah, that's how it is. In, in case you, in case you guys forgot, I just like graphically described it. Okay. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, now talk about Audrey dancing. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're past an hour now, uh, so I we can wrap up uh, if you guys like. But before we go, uh, there there is there is one more question that I have, which is, you know. Lynch is very adamant about not wanting to uh, tell people what the what the things in his movies mean because he he's very he's he he's very deliberate about wanting people to take away their own interpretations. Right. But do you think that through his movies, uh, Lynch is trying to impart on people um, a particular way of thinking or looking at the world or interacting with the world? I think he's definitely like a postmodernist. I think that's definitely, if you had to pick any sort of like philosophical position, that's probably what he would like subscribe to. Um, I also feel like his movies do deal a lot with like moral issues of like what is good and what is evil and that good always kind of eventually comes out on top. That doesn't sound terribly postmodern, though. Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the problem. 
the meta narrative of good versus evil is definitely not most modern. I, I actually I do I do see what you mean though about about um it being very like postmodern. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, here's here's where More I feel the, like, like death of the author sense. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I here's where I feel like it's like postmodern and like a lot of like what I feel like you know postmodern is is kind of like this realization that like things are like shit and you want to go back to like before things were shit almost what? kind of i mm, i don't know about that it's like yeah, here, i don't think that's i mean, I mean that's what it sounds like but i'm not the, sure that's what it is i mean here i think a lot of like postmodernists fall into this trap is the thing i'm like talking about here i'm not talking about what postmodernism is but like i feel like you know what 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 it kind just kind of like this it's just like this nostalgia i think i just think that nostalgia is very problematic most of the time <laughs> okay uh, i just i do have to like pick this a little bit because postmodernism is a really broad label for a lot of thinkers who have a lot of different beliefs and i don't think nostalgia is a really prevalent idea in no, no, Any it's not. No, so, I, ju I just wanted to say that. Like subjectivity. I just wanted to say that very, very much, that nostalgia is problematic, and I wanted to like tie it You're into what wrong. we were talking about. I would I would agree with that. I would agree yeah. with that statement. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm trying to say here. Um, and he's like usually very nostalgic in just like his tone and, you know, like the the kind of like values I think that he tries to uphold or like uh advocate for in his films which is weird because the people the kind of people who are into that like those films would be like their worst nightmare they would be absolutely scandalized by them right yeah it's like it, it, it it's a very it, he's like he it's very subversive it's like a very subversive way of like getting to like a very i think conservative almost like it contains point. multitudes that's yeah. why he donated to bernie and trump Go, go. <laughs> Do you remember oh that? Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, oh my god. I just think uh, that you that need to have balance. Oh my god. I am just obsessed with balance. a double Capricorn, right? And so I think that he does express it in like an interesting way by using nostalgia but i don't necessarily think he's putting forth those values as like the right ones i think that he's just depicting them i don't i don't really think that he takes a moral stance on a lot of things i think that he's kind of chaotic and um and just like um Quinn was saying earlier before we were recording that uh you, know, you have to understand David as a visual artist. And I think that he's like making vignettes of, of different aspects of, of life and the way that he sees it, but not necessarily taking a moral stance one way or the other. I remembered what I um, was going to say a minute ago when Alex was talking about the music. Um, and this is related to the painting as well, because uh, if I recall correctly, he was trained as like an abstract expressionist. Um, 
And it's interesting that, uh, you know, music is very important and it is uh, a purely abstract thing. It can have very narrative qualities, but it is it's totally abstract. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because I think that the thing that um, David Lynch's movies do kind of like um, the a point of view that they push is um, to be more comfortable with abstraction without things being explained um, or, or, you know, having like a concrete resolution. And it comes to that um, Ben sent me a, a clip uh, earlier today where um, a student has asked uh, David Lynch um like what do you say to people who um says that y- your stuff doesn't make sense um and he says like well you know i think that these are moments of abstraction in a film that you know they some people think oh i don't know where to go here i don't know what to think um and other people see this as like you know this um opening in the world that they can walk into and discover all kinds of things. Yeah. I think it's almost like what, one thing that, you know, like he, he's trying to do in his work is, you know, capture that abstraction. That is like, why is it that I'm like reaching for my tea right now? It's almost like that. Right. He's like trying to like, he, he's trying to like express human emotion in a, in a form that's digestible through vision and sound. And he's a vibes creator. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. That's what he's doing. He's trying to just like create these vibes. Hell no, yeah. Curate the vibe. Curate and, the and, vibes. And, and and it's like and and that's what really, you know, it it hyperdrives our intuition. You know, like the way that that's what he's trying to do, right? Right. That's like what he wants to do with his work in terms of like, you know, how he wants us. It's not like what, what, you know, answer we come up with. It's like the way that we even come up with the answer. That's like what his, you know, whole thing is about. And that also, again, reminds me of like Andre Breton and the the early surrealists who were trying to, like, you know, make art that would evoke, like, your intuitive and unconscious, uh, you know, reading of images and sounds and, you know, words as symbols instead of, like, you know, dialogue in, in like, a traditional sense. David wants to live rent-free in your head. (laughs) I mean, I I might watch couple more of these movies that he's made that I haven't seen yet. Sure. We'll, we'll see. Since this is like, you know, like one of our culture episodes, I feel like, and we're a politics podcast, I feel like I gotta like bring this up a little bit. Um, Gina Carano from uh, The Mandalorian just got fired for like comparing like the conservative MAGA people to like Jews during the Holocaust. Oh yeah, that was a cool tweet. It's <laughs> an embarrassing cool take. What did she? What did she get fired from? From the Mandalorian. The Mandalorian? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I and she probably like was... was gonna get her. She was probably gonna be getting like a starring role in like one of these new shows that uh they're like bu- they're building up right now. 
Yeah, that's okay. down the toilet. Well, now. what I had heard is that she was supposed to get her own show. Yeah, exactly. And then Disney canceled it. Like, but this happened like <laughs> at least like canceled. a month or two ago. Uh, I don't but, think Disney canceled it. I think I think that like <laughs> it's Rangers of the New Republic is uh-huh. like what she was probably going to be in. Okay. But yeah, now well, now she's like not even going to be in it. All right. Well, Aria Quinn, do, do y'all have any any uh final thoughts before we before we end things here? Oh my god. I think that all of you have disrespected Blue Velvet. I could have talked about it for much longer. Um I think with oh okay i know i'm always facing but anyway um oh yeah yeah it's 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 dealing with good and evil the same as the rest of it he just expresses it through sex um because he's a freak and a pervert and i love that and um i think everybody should also watch wild at heart ricky was begging us to watch wild at heart um and it's definitely the most nostalgic one, um, but it's also really, really, really funny. Um, so I recommend that. Also, it's a love story, and it ends happily um, because David is a romantic, even though he's a freaking pervert. Um, Doesn't it also have Willem Dafoe in it? Yeah, that movie does, looks really dope. So that scary. movie looks really dope. He's always scary. I yeah. love his face. Yeah, it goes off. God took an extra little bit of time on him. <laughs> he's not. He, yeah. He's not. He's yeah. not scary, and he's like a nice guy in John Wick. He's not scary. He's like. He's like. I like oh, he's scary. You're my I buddy. Like him an Antichrist. Um, David loves Italian Americans a lot. I'm just gonna put that out there. It's because we're lovable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm. Willem Dafoe, as well as Rossellini. Well, she's not American. She's a straight-up Italian, but... Oh, there's also that dude who spit out his espresso in a... Yeah! Quinn, did you have any final thoughts before we go? Um, I took a shitload of notes for this, and I talked about most of them. Um, I guess going back to what we said at the beginning about dream logic... Um, I saw an interview of Lynch's on YouTube where he was talking about this and he's like, yeah, like dreams are cool. Dreams can be interesting, but I'm more interested in daydreams because daydreams are kind of like you almost have a conscious control over them, but sometimes like your, your subconscious, your unconscious takes over. And that's how I kind of think of Lynch's movies as like a collaboration between the conscious, the subconscious, and the unconscious, not to be like super Freudian. I just think it, his movies are so important to so many people because they deal with like these big themes that affect everyone that are part of, you know, society and human nature. And that's why they're so relatable. And that's why people are probably going to be watching them for a really long time. Hell yeah. Well, um, do y'all have anything you want to plug before we go? I hope people. Uh, if you want to look up Mountain Access Brigade, um, if you care about helping people get abortion in Tennessee, okay, we can we can definitely link that in the show notes. 
Um, I don't do anything other than my job, but my good friend Stephanie has a podcast that I absolutely love called Real Housewives of Neopia, which is a commentary on reality TV. And she recently started a Patreon where she's doing episodes um, on Rock of Love season one. Um, it's absolutely delightful and it's only $5 a month. So if that's something you're interested in, I would highly, highly recommend it. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on your, uh, podcast platform. You can find us on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at SOTR pod. You can follow us, find us on Facebook at state of the revolution. And I believe we are going to be doing a live stream this coming Sunday, uh, February 14th, oh, Valentine's Day, uh, at 8 o'clock p.m. on oh uh, twitch.tv slash twitch.tv slash State of the Revolution. So uh, thanks again, and we'll see you on Sunday. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is alright I close my eyes Then I drift away Into the magic night I softly say A silent prayer Like If I...